Luke chapter 10, verse 25. This is what God's word says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we desire now as we have opened your word to hear not the voice of a man, not to hear the voice of a mere preacher, but to hear your very voice carried to us by your spirit who inspired the word. And we ask now that your spirit would apply and minister the word to our hearts so that we might with open ears and with open hearts, with the eyes of faith, receive Jesus Christ for all of his glory and sufficiency in the gospel. We ask this in his name. Amen. The parable of the Good Samaritan is arguably the most famous, famous parable. There are many famous parables that Jesus spoke, but this one takes the cake. Not only are churches named after it, but hospitals, uh, humanitarian organizations, and even residential streets bear its name. This is the most famous parable. But unfortunately, this is the most misunderstood parable. By far, because it is so often taken out of its proper context. You see, the Good Samaritan is widely presumed to be a moral lesson and example on how we should be good neighbors. Sounds like a State Farm commercial. How we should be like the Good Samaritan. And there are merits to that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But if you read it in its proper context, the primary reason Jesus tells this parable is not to tell us what we need to do, but to show us what we haven't done, to show us what we cannot do. You know, as a moralistic society, we have this terrible habit of pragmatizing the Bible, 
where we approach it as just some guidebook on good morals and self-improvement. And we, whenever we come to a passage, we're just looking for the 10 steps to become a better you. But in so doing, we completely miss the gospel, especially in this passage. Because this parable is not first and foremost a moral lesson, but it is Jesus disarming this self-righteous listener of any sense of his self-perceived morality so as to reveal how desperately he and we all are in need of the gospel of God's grace and mercy. You see, the parable begins in verse 30, which is when Jesus starts to tell it, but it cannot be understood apart from the verses leading up to the parable in verses 25 to 29, because they set the tone and the stage for the whole point of this Good Samaritan story. It all starts in verse 25, when a lawyer asks Jesus a question. Now, this lawyer was not just an attorney by trade who worked for some big law firm off of Embarcadero. But when you see the word lawyer in the Gospels, it means an expert in the Old Testament law, essentially a Jewish theologian. So this was a position to be a lawyer. It was a position of religious leadership, part of the high-class elite of Judaism who were marked by their scrupulous legalism through which they believed that they were holier than everybody else and were able to measure up to God's standard of holiness. And that's why you see the lawyers often lumped together with the Pharisees, which is what we'll see at the end of chapter 11, as Jesus cries out woes to both the Pharisees and the lawyers. In any case, this passage begins with this leader of Judaism asking Jesus a question. But notice the motive with which he asks the question. It says he stood up, verse 25, to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The Lord didn't ask because he was interested in learning. He was interested in showing how learned he was, and perhaps to elicit praise and affirmation from Jesus that this man was well on his way to eternal life because he was such an eminent religious leader. And notice earlier in verse 21, as we saw last week, Jesus praised the Father saying, You have hidden these things, that is, names being written in heaven, the eternal security of God's presence. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And then here, now Luke proceeds to include this account with the Lord to show that here was a man who was wise and understanding in his own eyes, who thought that he had it all figured out. And didn't need this gracious revelation from Jesus and all the forgiveness of sins that he has been talking about because that's for the tax collectors and prostitutes, not for the religious elite, as myself, as a lawyer would think. And so to prove himself to be wise and understanding, the lawyer prods Jesus with this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is to say, what kind of good deeds must I be doing and performing in order to obtain and earn this eternity of being welcomed by God into his presence, namely heaven? What must I do to get into heaven? Now, Jesus doesn't answer the question directly because the very premise of the question is wrong. As though the man had been or could be doing something to merit God's favor and acceptance, which we'll see shortly. 
But the lawyer probably asked this question with the expectation that Jesus would say, Hey, aren't you a lawyer? My goodness, you're, you're, you're part of the religious leadership, aren't you? You know what, man? You are the best candidate. So just keep doing whatever you're doing with all of your religious duties and all of your half-hearted philanthropy and all of your contribution to the synagogue, all your teaching. And don't worry, you're in much better shape than the tax collectors and the prostitutes. If anyone has the best chance to earn his way to heaven, it is you, good sir. That's what he wanted to hear. But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus answers with a question of his own in verse 26. Hey, aren't you a lawyer? What does the law of God say? Summarize the Old Testament for me. What does God require of you as written in the Bible? This wasn't the response that the lawyer expected, but that's okay. Because after all, he is an Old Testament theologian. He is an expert on the Old Testament law. And so he gives this wonderfully concise systematic summary of the entire Old Testament law. Verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now really, the lawyer gave an excellent answer. Jesus affirms it in the next verse. You have answered correctly. And Jesus himself summarized the law of God in the same way when speaking with the scribe on a separate occasion in in Mark chapter 12. Because indeed... The totality of God's law, the entire counsel and will of God, that's what the law is. The law is a transcript of the mind, heart, and will of God. The entirety of God's law and will for man is summarized in this twofold way. Love God and love one another. Taken respectively from Deuteronomy 6.4 and Leviticus 19.18. And that's actually how the Ten Commandments are presented, isn't it? It begins with the first four, which emphasizes vertical dimension of our relationship with God, the perfection and purity of our relationship with Him. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a carved image and bow down to it. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, is essentially the point. And then it proceeds to the next six, the last six, that our love and devotion to God would overflow and define our relationship with fellow man in this horizontal dimension honor your parents don't murder each other don't commit adultery and all the way down to the last one which is don't covet each other see every command of scripture falls within this twofold expression of god's perfect law and will to love him with the entirety of our beings and to be utterly devoted to him in worship and obedience and only then will that love for god spill over to the rest of society you know if you think about it This world's philosophy and ideology is that they want the results of a good and loving and righteous society, but they don't want to submit to God. In other words, people want the last six commandments to be obeyed, and often they want everybody else to obey them, but they'll excuse themselves when they disobey them, but they want nothing to do with the first four But that horizontal dimension of love for neighbor is impossible apart from that vertical dimension of love for God. Now, for instance, the world would be a wonderful place 
if I could just go to Starbucks with all my study and lay out all my, my laptop and my phone and wallet as I usually do on a table, and if I got, got to go potty, I can just go without worrying about somebody stealing all my stuff. But instead of what do I got to do, I got to pack up all my stuff and carry my backpack with me and then do my business, TMI, and then come back out and then re-unpack and get back to what I'm doing because why? That's just not reality where people are sinless and perfect and will not steal. So, so, so what then is the only permanent solution of stopping robbery, big or small? Even if, especially if, no one was around to see it and no one would ever know. My sister and her husband, my brother-in-law, they just got their entire U-Haul truck stolen with all their stuff. They were supposed to move a few weeks ago and none, none of it was found. And they never got caught. What could stop such a thing? You can codify all the legislation you want, but that won't do it. Last I checked, stealing is a crime. But that doesn't stop man's sinful nature. The answer, the only permanent solution, is the fear of God in every heart of man. That you know He is watching. And that you live to honor Him and reflect His holy character. Because you are utterly devoted to Him in love. That is the only answer. Love for God is what we were created for. And it is the fountainhead of every blessing resulting in true love for neighbor in a society governed by true goodness and virtue. And notice the absolute qualifiers of these two statements. Not just, just try to love God a little bit. Just go to church. Or just try to be nice to your neighbor. But love the Lord with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind, which is with everything, with the entirety of your being. And then love your neighbor as yourself. There is no higher way to describe love than for love for self because we all love ourselves. Even the folks who feel that they have low self-esteem, actually, the problem is that they love themselves too much. That they can't, can't stop looking inward and they see all their flaws and faults, and it drives them nuts. But it's because they love themselves too much. The only way the world would be a perfect place is if everyone perfectly loved God, and therefore loved their neighbor as themselves. Because then the perfection of God's love and righteousness and holy character would permeate all of society, and there will never be any crime or hurt or pain inflicted against each other. That's why this is the law of God. God's law is not some tyrannical decree. It's for our highest good and blessing in reflection of His perfect purity and holiness for which we all yearn. The whole world longs for that. And for God to accept any less than perfect obedience and conformity to His law is to degrade Himself and to desecrate His perfection. And thus He would no longer be the good and holy and righteous God. But instead, He would be a God inclined to evil tolerant of impurity and then we would find ourselves under the thumb of a selfish evil imperfect tyrannical ruler with all that said the lawyer here he gives the right answer the law says love god absolutely and love neighbor absolutely and so verse 28 jesus replies good that's correct do this and you will live because that's the way 
to be worthy of eternal life. That's how you merit your way to heaven. Perfect obedience to the law of God. Now at this point, the lawyer should have recognized that there's a big problem. By his own admission, perfect obedience of love for God, love for neighbor, is what the law demands, but he hadn't done that perfectly. You haven't either. I haven't either. No one has. That's why we need grace and not merit. We need a wholehearted rescue from God. But at this point, as this lawyer's conscience is tingling, notice, however, what he says. Verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? There are a couple of big problems with this question. First, the lawyer's only concern was the question of whether he loved his neighbor. Apparently, he believed that he had loved God perfectly, wholeheartedly, and that that part wasn't an issue. Not a chance. But this was the problem with the religious elite. They thought that their cold, empty religiosity marked by mechanical ritualism was a perfectly fine substitute for genuine, wholehearted affections and love for God. And Jesus will spend much time exposing the hypocrisy of such lawyers and Pharisees, especially later in chapter 11. That's the first problem. He thought he did the first part, but he didn't. But secondly... Even in the lawyer's concern with the latter aspect of love for neighbor, his main concern was not humble confession and repentance, but to double down in his self-righteousness. Because as verse 29 says, he asked this question desiring to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? He knows he hasn't loved every neighbor as himself, but he wants to believe that he is good enough still. And so he's looking for ways to excuse not having loved anyone and everyone in this absolutely selfless, self-giving way. And so he asks Jesus, ah, but let's define the terms. Who's my neighbor? Surely it's not the criminals of society, right? Good teacher. It can't be the really selfish and the really unreasonable people in my life. Those with some messed up personalities, and they've hurt me many times. Can it? And the lawyer is hoping that Jesus would agree with him and limit the scope to just the people that he's done a decent job loving. But isn't that exactly what we do as sinners? We want to justify ourselves when confronted with God's word and realize that we have not met his holy standard, we try to lower that standard down to the level of our depravity in the hopes that we might be seen as good enough. Now perhaps even this very moment as you hear God say through his word, love your neighbor as yourself, immediately pops into your mind a handful of faces of people you know and some of you, some of the people that pop up, the faces you, you do love, Now, it's not perfect, but oh, it's okay, nobody's perfect, and so immediately we justify ourselves there. But then your conscience brings up some other faces of very difficult people uh, in your life that you don't like to love, uh, those who have perhaps hurt you or done you wrong, and already your mind is instinctively at work to move those mugshots to the side like a windshield wiper because you don't want to admit that you have sinned against God by disobeying this absolute command, love your neighbor as yourself without any qualifications or
contingencies. Self-justification is what we do as sinners. The sinful nature refuses to acknowledge that we are sinners before a holy God, that we all deserve the true justice of His righteous punishment. And this self-righteous, proud heart is what God must mercifully break down by convicting us of true sin and righteousness by His Spirit, so that our hearts might be primed for the gospel. And that, my friends, is what this parable of the Good Samaritan is meant to do, to show us our utter inability and falling short of God's holy standard. You see, verse 29 is the pivotal verse on which this entire parable hangs, because it is the lawyer's attempt at self-justification to which Jesus then replies in verse 30 with the parable of the Good Samaritan. And a parable just being a fancy word for illustration by way of story or metaphor. And so in response to this lawyer who asks, who is my neighbor? To what extent should my love for neighbor be limited? Jesus replies with this story to illustrate his answer, which is to say there is no limit. And the parable begins like this in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very long and dangerous road. It was about 17 miles on foot. Now I know to us, 17 miles doesn't sound that long uh, because we're used to Teslas. Like I see a Tesla back there, it goes very fast. But again, it was on foot. It's a very, very long journey. And the traveler would have to traverse through these windy, rocky roads to get there. And I remember when I was in Israel about four or five years ago, we actually got to see this terrain, this, this road to Jericho, and be able to visualize the scene of this parable. And let me tell you, if you have acrophobia, if you have a fear of heights, you do not want to be on this road. It looked like a smaller version of the Grand Canyon. Imagine traveling through that and traversing through these narrow, windy paths and very narrow paths with all these rocks surrounded by all these caves. And my goodness, it's just like an Indiana Jones movie or something. And as such, the journey was notorious for being dangerous, not only because the terrains were dangerous, but because this road was filled often with highway robbers, bandits who would be hiding out in those caves, waiting to pounce on vulnerable travelers. And so here we have a man who was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, which tells us that he was a Jewish man, who had some business and religious affair in the capital, Jerusalem, and was now going back home to Jericho. But on his way, he was ambushed, not by one robber, but a multitude of robbers. You see the plural there in verse 30. And so he was mobbed by a vicious gang took everything from him, stripped him naked, beat him to a bloody pulp, and left him barely alive. Now imagine the scene. He probably looked like a carcass on that road, especially with no clothes on. And this is what happens next in verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that same road, and when he saw him, he passed by the other side. This priest was apparently from Jericho, And he had just gone to Jerusalem 
to render his priestly service at the temple. That's what the priest would have to do. They would have to be always traveling to the capital where the temple was. And when he saw the man, he was horrified and went to the other side of the road immediately. Why? Well, obviously he lacked compassion, but along with that, it was probably because if this man were dead, and he sure looked dead, and if the priest were to come in contact with the corpse, the priest would have been rendered ceremonially unclean according to the law, and so out of a desire to preserve himself and maintain his religious purity, he stayed as far away as possible to make sure that he wouldn't be rendered unclean. Now you see what's being depicted. This Jewish priest, who by virtue of his office was called to serve his people by acting on their behalf, he chose to serve himself and deny this man in his hour of greatest need. You know, Jesus was a master storyteller. He picked those details for a reason. And and. In so doing, he was nudging the lawyer. You think your legalistic religiosity earns you points with God? Here is an example of one who might keep the letter of the law, but completely abandon the spirit of it to love this dying neighbor at all. And so this priest, the epitome of religious leadership, neglects the man altogether. Another person walks by, and this time is a Levite. And it says in verse 32, So likewise, a Levite, when he, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And by Levite, I mean a member of the tribe of Levite. But all Levites, nevertheless, even though they weren't all priests, all Levites were called to special service for the tabernacle and later the temple, assisting the priests. And so the Levites also were representative of spiritual leadership. But what does this Levite do? Same thing. Went far away. Across to the other side. Now here's a dramatic turn. Verse 33. But a Samaritan. And the way it's written there, it's fronted for emphasis and shock. You would have heard an audible gasp at that point. A Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion now why is this so shocking because as we've seen before Samaritans and Jews were viciously hostile enemies they hated each other as I mentioned in the previous weeks this enmity was there for centuries before Jesus because the Samaritans were effectively a mixed race of Jewish and Gentile blood When the northern tribes were exiled in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire, who destroyed them and exiled them, they brought in people from within their own empire, all kinds of Gentiles, to the region of Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom. And then they occupied that region, and so eventually they intermarried with the Israelites there. And so, for the Jews, the Jew being the southern tribe, the kingdom of Judah... They looked at their northern brothers and said, you are a bunch of, to borrow the language of Harry Potter, as they always do, mudbloods. Filthy, Gentile dogs, is what they would say. They're viewed as impure. They were disgusted by them. And the Samaritans likewise returned a favor of hatred. And the hostility was so bad 
that actually ancient records of Jewish liturgical prayers from the first century, and by that I mean these were the prayers that would be recited in the public worship service in the synagogue, records show that they had words like, and do not remember them, the Samaritans, in the resurrection. In other words, in their public worship service, they would be praying, Lord, bless us the Jews, and may the Samaritans go to hell. That was the hostility. They were enemies who had zero compassion for one another. They didn't even talk to each other, which is why in John chapter 4, when Jesus talked to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, she was shocked and she said, how is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me, a Samaritan? That doesn't happen. They were enemies. If a Samaritan were on the ground dying and a Jew walked by, a Jew would have said, good, you filthy dog, and spit on him. And vice versa, if a Jew were suffering, a Samaritan would have happily kicked him while he was down and moved on. But here we see this Samaritan, of all people, moved with compassion at this dying Jewish man, helped him, stopped. His own kinsmen crossed to the other side, his fellow Jews. But this Samaritan, get this, loved his fiercest enemy with the absolute best of himself. Not only did he draw near to the dying man, but it says in verse 34, he bound up his wounds pouring oil and wine. Pouring oil and wine was the ancient practice of mending the wounds because oil was to soothe the open wounds and the wine was to disinfect the wound with its alcoholic properties, just like how we today use rubbing alcohol. And then it says, then he set him on his own animal, which is probably a donkey or a mule, but understand what that means is that as he was on his journey riding his animal, he got off, put that Jewish man on that animal, and he, the Samaritan had to walk the rest of the way, which is not an easy walk. And it says that he brought him to an inn and took care of him. He paid for the expenses, but it wasn't just that he dropped off the Jewish man, the half-dead man, uh, in a nice facility, but the Samaritan himself stayed with the man and tended to him all night after checking out the hotel. As implied by verse 35, the next day, he spent the whole night with him, and the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. You know how much two denarii was? That was worth more than three weeks of stay at the inn. That's a lot of money. I don't spend that for myself. I don't stay at a hotel for three weeks. But he gave him to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and I'll repay you when I come back. And by telling the innkeeper, I'll repay you when I come back, the Samaritan was clearly on a long journey somewhere, but he had gone out of his way, interrupted his travel plans, canceled his flight, as it were, to go tend to the man, and then resumed his journey, and not only that, planned to come back and see this Jewish man again, to return to him, to the inn. Out of such compassion and love. This is what the Samaritan does for his worst enemy. And Jesus asks, 
the rhetorical question in verse 36, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man? And you can almost see the lawyer answering begrudgingly through his teeth in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even get himself to say the Samaritan. Only can refer to him as the one who showed him mercy. You see, God's holy standard of loving your neighbor is limitless. It is utterly self-denying. Even to your enemies, to give the best of yourself to the worst of enemies. Now tell me, having understood this parable in its full context, do you feel that you are the good Samaritan? Can you honestly say that you are a good person who has loved neighbor the way God demands and that by doing so, you can inherit eternal life by your good deeds? You can't. I can't. And that's the point. Through this parable, Jesus is exposing the worthlessness of relative morality. Because no matter how good you think you are, no matter how much better you think you are than all the other people who aren't as good as you in your own eyes, you all, we all, fall short of God's infinite glory and His holy standard of His law. For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, religious or not, good morals or bad. All are fallen. And so when Jesus ends by saying, you go and do likewise, He wasn't trying to encourage the lawyer's self-righteousness. And have him take another swing at trying to merit his way to eternal life. No, he said this to strip the man of his self-righteousness and to bring him to his knees in desperate confession and need. Because upon hearing, go and do likewise, the lawyer is meant to say, Lord, if that's what it means to love neighbor, I can't. If that's the kind of obedience required to inherit eternal life, Who can do it? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? Jesus, I realize now that I can do nothing to inherit eternal life. But can you help me? Is there anything you can do for me? Now we're getting somewhere. Yes, he can. That is the gospel. Because there is one who has loved God perfectly and loved neighbor perfectly. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God the Son who not only stopped on the road somewhere, but he descended from heaven down to us in true humanity that he might fulfill the law's holy demand on behalf of sinners. He lived the perfect life of sinless obedience to God, which we have all failed to do. He loved God, His Father, with all of Himself. And this is the point of that little episode back in Luke chapter 2 at the end of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy. Remember how He gets left behind in Jerusalem? And then Mary and Joseph have to come back and find Him? What's the point of that story? It's not just some story about how Jesus... Got lost and oh no, crisis. And then eventually, hooray, he was found because thanks to the PA system at Walmart, we were able to find him. No, the question is not 
The fact that he was found, but where was he found? At the video game section at Target? He was found in the temple, captivated by the word of God. Here was the eternal son of heaven, who was truly man, so much so that here we see a snippet of him as a real growing 12-year-old boy. He was a real 7th grader. What were you doing in 7th grade? What was I doing in 7th grade? Oh my goodness, what was I doing in 7th grade? My heart's desire was to be cool and popular. I I loved video games with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What was Jesus doing in 7th grade? There we see his delight was in the law of the Lord. And he meditated on it day and night. He loved God the Father with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and all his strength. That's the life that you and I should have lived. To earn his true righteousness and holiness, to be worthy of entering God's eternal presence. But Jesus has come to live it for us. To do what we failed to do so that by faith in him, His holy righteous life might be totally transferred to our account as a free gift of God's grace as though we had lived His holy life. As though we had lived like that in 7th grade. This is the gospel. That Jesus has come to live the perfect life that we should have lived and to die the death that we deserve. And He fulfilled the law of loving neighbor to its absolute perfection in that while we were still sinners while we were hostile enemies of God rebels against him Christ died for us the ungodly in his infinite mercy and compassion he gave not just two denarii or the clothes on his back but he gave his own life, his own flesh to be torn, even unto death, because he saw with the eyes of pity and love our hopeless spiritual condition, that we were as good as dead, destined to eternal death. And so he went to the cross, bearing the sins of those he came to save, so that he might bear the punishment of God's holy wrath and justice that you and I were destined to bear. It's not just that Jesus tends to the wounds as a healer external to us, but that he swapped places with the sinners he came to heal. That in their place he would be stripped and beaten and pierced in his hands and feet and left not just half dead but fully dead, hung on a cross, all so that we might be healed by his wounds. Because he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace with God. You see, you are not the Good Samaritan. Jesus alone is the Good Samaritan who has come to love even his enemies. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The Holy God giving the best of himself 
to the worst of sinners, like you and me. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in Jesus as your Savior, do not believe the lie. I plead with you, don't believe the lie that you're not that bad. You are that bad because you are a sinner before God who is infinitely holy. You will never be good enough for God by your own deeds and morals because God rightfully demands perfect obedience. But if you confess and believe that you are a hopeless sinner and you trust in what Jesus has done to rescue sinners by His death and resurrection, He will clothe you with His righteousness and give you the free gift of eternal life in His presence, which you could never earn, but is given to you freely in Christ because of what Christ has earned. And only when you acknowledge your dire spiritual condition before God, then you will receive the outpouring of God's compassion and mercy and love for you. And all the true Christians in this room are those who have confessed, Lord, I see that I am a wicked man. I see that I am a wicked woman. I am a sinner. Save me. And so non-Christian, he will save you and anyone who cries out to him for rescue. So stop trusting in yourself and put your trust in Jesus who is merciful and kind. Now church, For us who have received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ, the words of our Lord at the end not only serve to disarm us of self-righteousness, but for us they also arm us and equip us in the ways of His righteousness. Because when Jesus says, you go and do likewise, for us as believers we are called to obey the commands. You see, the, the religion of the Pharisees and the lawyers, all man-made religion says, do this and then, therefore you will inherit eternal life or paradise or nirvana or whatever, fill in the blank. But the gospel says, you have inherited eternal life in Christ. You have been given everything freely by His grace. Therefore, do this, walk in this, pursue this, enjoy The Christian is saved from the condemnation of the law in order that he might now be able to walk in conformity to the law. Not to disregard it. Because the law of God is the will of God. We are saved from sin so that we might serve and obey and please God and live His will. We're saved so that we can serve and obey and please God. That's why Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount to His disciples, to those who are in Christ, love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what good is that to you? That's not impressive. Sinners are the same thing. Anyone can do that. But love those who hate you. And then you will be like your Father in heaven. And then through that you will reflect His holy character. Only the Gospel can enable a man or woman To love so radically and supernaturally. Because only the born again soul saved by the grace of God can say. No enemy of mine 
can do greater offense to me than I have done to God. But he has so loved me, who was once his enemy. And anyone who would hurt me, harm me, would be hostile to me, they must be prayed for and ministered to because they are pitifully lost souls just as I was who need the grace of God just as I do. Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Only the believer is able to love like that. And in this way, the believer is empowered by God's Spirit to pursue and fulfill the law of loving neighbor without limits. And so church, let us therefore be such gracious, selfless, and loving people in reflection of Christ our Lord, whom we love. Let us take to heed Jesus, take heed to Jesus' words and strive to walk in joyful obedience to the will of God, to love others with the Christ-like love, because by this we glorify the one who has so loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of the gospel and that you meet us in our unrighteousness because Christ is the very hope of our righteousness. And we pray that you would help us to trust in him, abide in him, and to live out our lives in him and for him. And now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, would you bless these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup and set them apart for the holy purpose of reminding us and reassuring us of the sufficiency of Christ and that by his death atoned for our sins completely and that on the cross was imputed not only our sin to him but his righteousness to us who believe. Lord, strengthen our faith with the assurance, even this visible sign and seal of your gospel, so that we might rejoice in Christ and live obediently to him. In his name we pray. Amen.